Welcome to Into the Breach, a reps and warranties policy podcast by Brian O'Keefe and Jenna Usenheimer, partners and co-leaders of the Transactional Underwriting Council practice at Cyforth Shaw, interviewing leaders from the industry and exploring the latest developments, market trends, and news impacting RWI and the transactional risk insurance markets. Welcome back to Into the Breach. Uh, I'm Brian O'Keefe. I'm your host of this show. Uh, join with my co-host, Jenna Usenheimer. How are you oh, doing today, Jenna? Good. How are you, Brian? I'm doing very well, thank you. And uh, very excited today, Jenna. The show has officially gone international with our guest that we're having today. How about that? I know. It's very exciting. So maybe we should introduce our guest. I Keep everyone we, in suspense. I know. I think we'll just head right to it. Uh, so today we are uh, very, very fortunate to have as our guest, uh, Gus Marshall, the global practice uh, leader for transactional liability at CFC Underwriting. He is coming to us uh, from London this morning, and we're uh, very excited to have you here, Gus. Thanks very much, Brian. Delighted to be on the show. Yes. You're our first accent. Thank you. Welcome. My, my, my accent might be a little bit confused. I've Got an English lilt, but originally Australian. So uh, hopefully, oh, uh, the, the, the audience can understand me. Okay, some words might not translate perfectly. Well, I'm gonna insist on a little detour here. So last year, in the beginning of last year, I spent a month in Australia, and with Cypherth has offices in Melbourne and Sydney, and I spent like a month working out of them, and it was great. I loved it. Well, I'm, I'm from Melbourne originally and spent a good um, four years in Sydney, so know, know them both well. Melbourne's better. I'm on Team Melbourne for sure. Um, yep. But it was really fun. I had a really great time. And no problem understanding the accent. No, no. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> the biggest problem, honestly, was the coffee. Like, apparently, I'm an American with a weak palate and I like weak American coffee, but there's not weak American coffee to be had in Melbourne. So that, that was the biggest obstacle for me. Yeah, I mean, that, that would be an offense to ask for, for weak American coffee in Melbourne. Right. Melbourne is so I learned. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I have to admit, I love everything about the US, but the coffee I can do without. See? And I also, it was only when I was in Australia when I learned that people outside of America find it very offensive that the only people who participate in the World Series are Americans, but yet we call it the World Series. So yeah, that, that is something that is a, a bone of contention with, with Australians and also with Brits for that matter. Yeah, yeah. But then I also learned about the Com games, which I never knew about. So, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah we, we've got our own sort of parochialism for sure. Yeah. Um, right. But you got to hand it to the to the Americans. I mean, look, if you win the World Series, there's no doubt you are the best in the world. So that. Um, <laughs> well, as a baseball fan, I will be I will be defensive of the World Series here. So, uh, but uh, but yeah, it's great to have you guys. Uh, we appreciate you uh, you being on today. Um, and you know, maybe uh, just talk a little bit about your own background. Um, you know, we know you're at uh, CFC now and. Uh, you know, how long you've been there and how, how did you first get started in this industry? Sure. So um, I've been at CFC now for just over a year and um, what a year it's been, mostly in lockdown. Um, <laughs> certainly different from um, perhaps some of the excesses of the, the London market, which is um, famous or, or infamous rather for, um, for its, its launching and broker and underwriter uh, entertainment which is obviously a, a, a key part of the industry and, and certainly a fun one but um 
<laughs> for CFC, I was uh, the head of M&A for AIG here in London. Um, and my remit there was uh, the UK and London market, London market being a, a byword for um, sort of anything in EMEA um, outside of uh, continental Europe. Uh, and like so many in the in the market, um, you know, AIG was was a, a, a tremendous uh, company to start uh, understanding and working on reps and warranties, insurance, um, and all that transactional products. Um, but CFC came along and presented a, a, a really unique opportunity that was to grow their business and um, have a real focus on new products, new innovation. And that really appealed to me because uh, despite this product being around for 20 years, give or take, it's still in many ways in its infancy. And uh, I think M&A underwriters and brokers are uniquely positioned to, um, to do things that haven't been done before and, and will inevitably be done. But to, to have a hand in that, I think, is, uh, is tremendously exciting. So that was really why I, I moved to CFC. And like, uh, like many in the market, I was a, a, a corporate lawyer at Norton Rose Fulbright in Sydney. And I used to advise um, carriers in Australia um, on uh, W&I placements, as it's called in, in Oz and outside of, of North America. And um, I think perhaps a, a, an interesting factoid for, for your audience, um, <laughs> Australia uh, is the pioneer in uh, securities class actions or class actions generally, but also in, um, in W&I insurance. In fact, the penetration rate of W&I insurance in Australia uh, certainly on private equity has been hovering sort of 70 to 80% for over a decade now. Uh, wow. It would be very, yeah, very, very unusual for a PE deal in Australia to not be insured. Uh, and, uh, and so that, that was a good, a good market to cut my teeth in on certainly the Absolutely. advisory side. All of us in the United States are just taking after Australia, I guess then, huh? <laughs> well, it's, uh, I think Australia takes a lot after the US, but this is something we can do. <laughs> well, that certainly is a very interesting background. And uh, yes, I think uh, CFC has uh, been, um, you know, a real leader in coming up with, you know, innovative products and, and some different ways of looking at, uh, at this. And I think your leadership has also been expanding, um, you know, those sort of product offerings, which I know is exciting opportunities for you. Uh, absolutely. So we've um, we have recently released a um, a portfolio uh, product which is really aimed at trying to target those bolt-on acquisitions, uh, which are made by trade or PE in the build-out of a, a portfolio. And what this product does, or what this solution rather does, is um, give a lot of certainty over the process, the coverage, the price, um, the wording. Uh, and with that certainty, it means that uh, deal makers and brokers can focus on doing the deal as opposed to having to market the risk to 20 different carriers and get terms on a transaction that, I mean, let's face it, on its own might not be that compelling to underwriters or brokers, but together as part of a portfolio. Uh, and the fact that we build economies of scale from that um, means that we can do something um, quite compelling on the coverage side and on the solution side. So. That's the, that's the thought there. And we've already had uptake from clients, um, very large corporate clients. I really shouldn't say who, but um, 
if you're filling up gas or, or buying late at night, um, you'd be probably using our client. Um, and other um, products that we've recently launched is an IP and M&A solution, which is really pitched as a, a deal facilitator. Um, one where, you know, I think one of the best scenarios is that if you're a buyer and you are struggling to get the, the relevant coverage under the IP reps for IP exposure due to bargaining power or whatever it may be, um, you can really backfill that exposure with an, a standalone IP policy, but you, you can buy that as part of a single underwriting process for your reps. Now, we don't only offer it in conjunction with reps. If you wanted to go and buy this IP policy um, on a standalone basis, you of course could, but um, I just think it's quite a compelling tool to pull out of the, the quiver, so to speak, um, right. in a in, in a M&A process. So that's something we're talking about Currently, we have a webinar next week. Um, shameless plug, but uh, I'm sure. By the uh, way. Yeah, well, by the way, <laughs> um, given it's a webinar, there's an endless number of people who, who can sign up. So um, anyone interested, <laughs> I'll send you the, the link, um, Brian. And, and if you felt so obliged, then I'd be delighted if you included the link on your um, your famous LinkedIn posts. Well, oh, well, I, shameless I, plug for Brian too. Look at that. We'll be happy to do that. And, and you should use the opposite marketing technique, guys. You should tell everybody there's only 50 spots for this webinar and like you have to I sign up now. today or else well, it's, that, they will never know what the what the product is. So that's a very good point. I, I'm glad I didn't become a marketer and became a but those those are those are really fascinating products. I know that your your group has been the, the leaders of that in trying to come up with innovative solutions uh, to those sorts of issues. And I think what we also wanted to talk with you about today, sort of a, a the broad uh, subject matter, was some novel potential uses of reps and warranty insurance. Um, since you are such an innovative. Uh, player in the industry, we thought it'd be great to talk with you about some ways that uh, you're seeing reps and warranties used and some potential ways that it could be used in, in as you said, ways that aren't even being done today. Um, and so I think the first one off the bat we wanted to talk about was uh, this idea of uh, secondary transactions. Um, you know, these are transactions involving uh, GPs or LPs usually at, uh, in their funds in uh, either shifting around between GP funds or LPs selling their interest in funds and not been an area where we've traditionally seen a lot of insurance, but uh, there's been a lot written about this lately. And um, you know, maybe have some of your thoughts about the potential for that and how the product can help uh, help smooth over some of those transactions. Sure. Um, so perhaps a couple of kind of introductory remarks on it. Um, so, you know, I think in terms of innovating with the use of, of reps and warranties, you need to focus on what the idea of reps and warranties is. And effectively, if you have a warranty or representation, then in theory, uh, reps and warranties could be applied. Um, and the other point I'd make generally around, around innovation would be, um, you know, underwriters can be as innovative as they like, but if it, if you don't have the support of the broker community, um, then it's kind of all for nothing, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the clients need to have the solution that you're trying to solve in the first place. And the broker needs right. to have the confidence to be able to sell what you're offering um, in order to have a viable product. So, you know, I think it's, we, we certainly think of it as a collaborative effort between us um, as underwriters and brokers as representatives of the client. Uh, and then of course, 
um, your good selves have a key role in it all as well as both advisors and uh, to underwriters, but also advisors to um, to clients undertaking M and A transactions. So right. it's a you know it's an interesting ecosystem, and I think that really um, you know just to make a point around the market generally, uh, it's there's lots of people in it. I mean, there's there would be I think close to uh, fifteen hundred people. At a minimum, I haven't taken a tally recently, but I, I'm guessing about 1,500 people globally in the market, and you'd be surprised at how many of them know each other and know each other very well. Right. Um, very small world. <laughs> yeah. So uh, in in that way, it's it is it is easier to innovate because you've got the relationship. Um, and then you know, just sort of segueing into secondaries transactions and applying that construct of you know you need a representational warranty to ensure well. Secondary transactions um, have warranties in abundance, but the underlying risk is different. Um, and you know, picking up on that collaboration point with brokers, um, so Matt Hines at Aon in New York, Peter DeWasblank at Hub in New York, both leaders at um, trying to develop a, 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 you know, an active market for reps and warranties insurance on secondary transactions. And again, it just speaks to the point that you need that collaboration. Um, but you know, just, just sort of honing in on the, the coverage of secondaries transactions. I think it's fair to say that secondaries investors have been um, interested in the use of reps and warranties insurance on those deals. Um, but I don't think that they felt that the risk exposure was high enough when you were just insuring uh, the reps. Um, and the quirk of secondaries transactions is often understood to be the excluded obligations indemnity. Uh, and that's something that, that, you know, that form of indemnity is not something you would necessarily see uh, on a buyout deal. And, uh, and we've been quite active in, in trying to find solutions to ensure that excluded ob obligations indemnity. Um, and again, you know, Matt and, and Peter uh, have been you know, really leading the charge in, in trying to figure that out. Uh, so I think that's an, that's an interesting development for secondaries. Um, that will be a market that I'm sure will flourish in time um, as people had their doubts initially about, about uh, reps on buyouts, um, will overcome those objections and, and people will see the real value in being able to release escrows, um, holdbacks, being able to make more efficient use of capital in transactions. And that's really, you know, the commercial driver of the transact of reps and warranty insurance is so much about that. That's why it's been so popular. Uh, it's not just about risk transfer, which is how people usually conceive of what insurance is there to do. Um, and of course it does do that because if it didn't, you wouldn't be allowed to re release the capital. Uh, so that's secondaries. Um, there's so much to say about it. it it's, um, it's embarrassing to be, to, getting, to be getting this excited about reps and warranties insurance. <laughs> <laughs> Here I am. Well, you're in the right place for that, right? We started well, cool. a podcast about it for crying out loud. So I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I think you make an excellent point about the broker community. Uh, that's, you know, we'll give a shout out to Matt Hines too. Uh, he's uh, one of our uh, favorite people in this and has been very helpful uh, to us. And I think it, it is a, a very unique industry where the, the brokers and the underwriters and the outside counsel, you know, everybody sort of is working, even though we're all different roles to play in all this, we're all sort of working together and it does benefit everybody to be thinking creatively about ways that we can develop new products or new markets to try to tap for this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, so just sort of on the same innovation vein, um, SME transactions 
um, and public and SPAC transactions slash pipe transactions. Lots of acronyms that I'm sure your audience know well. <laughs> um, but, you know, for, for SME, the, the, the innovation there might not be that apparent. Um, and I guess it really depends on how you define what SME is. People think there's a common definition. I don't think there really is. But when, when I talk about SME, I really mean uh, transactions under uh, 10 million EV. So I guess we can drop the M in the SME and just call it SE if you like. Um, <laughs> you created a new acronym. <laughs> um, doesn't have quite the same ring, but we can go with it. Uh, you know, the the issue with with SE transactions, I'm going with it. Um, <laughs> go with is, uh, is you know, again, picking up on that point I made about the portfolio solution, it's very difficult for underwriters to get that interested or excited, um, economically speaking, about um, small transactions. And if you just look at the overall cost input and revenue output of underwriting M&A transactions, it is difficult to turn a profit and everyone is acting economically rationally in, in a competitive market. And so SE transactions have been somewhat ignored. Um, now, you know, you're looking at the, the value of the transaction, but if you look at the volume of the transaction, they are far outweigh um, the middle and upper parts of the market. Mm -hmm. by deal count. And so I think it, it, it behooves the market to try and figure out a way of ensuring that. And what you'd really need is you need scale first and foremost. And if you want to have scale, you need distribution. Mm -hmm. And so the answer to the issue doesn't just lie in what the product is. The answer also lies in how do brokers produce enough of this business profitably. Mm -hmm. um, right. And I think it's fair to say you know, if we have a standard underwriting process that you would have on a, a, a mid-market deal, um, time-consuming and, and quite technical, um, it's not going to work. Uh, so how do you create that homogenous product that is well understood by brokers that have access to that kind of business? Um, bearing in mind that, you know, the, the mid and upper market is, is broke by um, expert brokers who really understand the product and understand M&A. And I just don't think that um, that's necessary for the SE part of the market because we'd want to treat this far more as a scale insurance product as opposed to an M&A product that's, that's, that happens to be insurance, which is really how I describe the mid-market kind of product. Uh, I, I think those are excellent points. And I think that that is an untapped uh, area. As you said, I think that's something that's being really ignored right now and, and is an area that... Uh, with some innovation, there there can be uh, you know just a great market there to to potentially go after, even though it's not being done uh, really today. We're we're um we're pretty excited by it. We've you know CFC's got a track record of you know in terms of SME cyber risks, we're we're the leader in the states. In fact, we're the leader globally. Um, we've insured over um, seventy thousand businesses on that basis alone. So. You know, for me, it's it's certainly trying to look to to that area of our business to try and figure out, you know, how do we scale this um, using some of the techniques that have been successful in cyber. Right, and then I think um, just briefly touching upon the uh, sort of public transactions and SPAC transactions, and you know, that's another area we're seeing a, a lot written about that and another novel potential use of the product as well. Yeah, so you know, on, on SPAC transactions, I think. Um, you know, the, going back to the construct of, of reps and warranties insurance, if there are warranties, 
then there's an application for insurance. Um, and, you know, SPAC is alluding to the capital stack of the transaction and how that's organized. It's not alluding to how the deal will ultimately be done. Um, it may, may be that there's a, you know, an acquisition of a company on to normal buyout terms. I think, I think the trick with, with SPAC though is trying to draw some lessons from DNO underwriters um, and just the, you know, just general principles about how the SPAC may have been managed. One point that strikes me as being pertinent here is, um, you know, the, the, the Akazu SPAC transaction, which is pretty well known as an unmitigated disaster. Um, if you unpick the lead up to that transaction, um, there was uh, demonstrable desperation from investors to get a deal done. Uh, and that really should be, from an underwriting standpoint, alarm bells. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, it, it's not so much that there's true innovation when it comes to SPAC, it's more the underwriting methodology and the thought process would need to differ. And that's really my, my remark around DNO insurance because you know, it, it, those guys and girls think about that all day, every day. And, and um, sometimes the reps market can, has been rightly accused of operating in a silo um that's slowly changing and this is an issue which really shouldn't have any silo thinking around it great well we thought that we would move away from your innovation and uh, new and exciting uses for rwi insurance um and talk about a little game that brian and i have all our guests uh participate in called once more unto the breach and we have a couple of questions for you so the first question is, what do you think the biggest changes that we will see in the RWI um, industry in the next 12 months? Or WI, as we say in Oz. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I only have one or can I, can I say more? You can say more, you can say more. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's inevitable that there'll be rate hardening. Um, I mean, that's a bit of a boring answer, but it's a truthful one. Uh, I, I think that rates will harden. Um, certainly that that rate environment is going to gain momentum come 1-1. One, one. Yeah. Um, there may be um, fewer carriers offering reps and warranties um, in the next 12 months. Um, I don't think that should be taken as some kind of a judgment on the class. Um, I think that if you look at any class of insurance, there are um, underwriters and carriers that come and go depending on what their, you know, what their commercial strategy is. So, so that'd be another, um, another development. But I also would like to think that um, through innovation and, and whatever else, sorry to, to, to go back there, um, Jenna, but I, I'm, I'm hoping that <laughs> yeah. we're done with the innovation at. section of the podcast. No more talk about that. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping that, that innovation <laughs> is going to demonstrate just how, how um, committed to M&A and, and find us, trying to find solutions to M&A that the market is. Um, yeah. And I think that's going to happen because when it comes to disruption and economic downturns and these types of issues that we're all contending with, it's inevitable that there's this right. um, new branch of thinking that, that flourishes after these challenges. So I think that's going to happen. Maybe not in the next 12 months, but it'll no doubt start. Wow. Well. We're going to hold you to the 12 month mark here on this podcast. So we'll come back <laughs> and check in. Yeah, exactly. those are the rules. Um, okay. Number two, what is the, a piece of career advice that you would give someone who's looking to get involved in um, corporate insurance? Well, the um, exciting world of insurance. I think 
I think figure out how to tell your parents first. <laughs> <laughs> and explain what it means, right? After um, that. <laughs> my parents still don't understand any of this. They're just <laughs> like <laughs> you know, I think um I think the thing that a lot of people will tell you about this industry is um that it's a bit frustrating that insurance is kind of maligned as a as a moribund or perhaps un, uninteresting industry to get involved in. And my experience, and look, everyone's different, but my experience is um, it couldn't be further from the truth. This, to me, is a fascinating industry full of really interesting, passionate people. Um, and when you acknowledge the fact that wherever you look and whatever you do, insurance is relevant through that. Everything you do. Um, insurance as an industry gets really, really interesting really, really quick. And I think that if you approach it from that perspective, um, then it's a pretty easy decision to make. Um, you know, just sort of thinking about the actual practice of, of underwriting as a reps and warranties insurance underwriter, um, it's really the only commercial application of um, you know, M&A lawyer skills. Right. You know, I, I sort of distinguish, I distinguish it, you know, you both as, as counsel to your clients are paid to try and have your clients avoid risk and we're in the business of taking risk. Right. Um, so it's the same thought process, but it's a different outcome. And right. I think that um, you'll be unsuccessful if you come into this market thinking, um, well, I just want to practice it as if I was a lawyer uh, because it's not, un underwriters are not masquerading as lawyers they are underwriters with M&A legal skills. Yeah. So that's that's kind of how I, the advice I would give to someone who's, who's keen on getting into the industry. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, guys. And I, think you, I think you also hit on why I find this whole industry so interesting. I've always been, uh, we had another guest on, we were talking about this recently. I've always been sort of interested in behavioral psychology and behavioral economics and taking risk and how businesses decide to take risk or not take risks. And I actually don't think there's another, you know, sub niche industry where the bets are all pretty big <laughs> that all of us are making on this and where we are really making these real time decisions about this. And, and as you said, at the front end, it's a relatively new product. So it's not like, um, it's not like applying some case law that's been around for 400 years and is a pretty road application. Like we're, uh, kind of coming up with this and making these decisions. And I find just that whole area, you know, that's why I'm very drawn to all this because it is a fascinating application of, of that. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I'm, you can't see me. Well, you can, but the audience can't. I'm, I'm nodding. <laughs> um, I, I would agree with all of that. Uh, it's thing that, you know, that if I can add, the, the thing that I also find really interesting about my job is um, it's so easy to be intellectually curious in this job. Yeah. You, get, you get an issue across your desk that you haven't really considered before and you can spend a couple of hours trying to figure it out and it might only be relevant to India or Mauritius or <laughs> certain state in the US or whatever and um, suddenly you know you, you, your your understanding of commercial issues across the globe um, suddenly starts to develop and um, yeah it's 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 just really I, I, I find that really motivating personally yeah. And so our final question and our fun little game here is if you had to come up with your own RWI themed drink, what would it be, Gus? Well. And why? 
what would it be and why? That's important. Okay, so, well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so I think it's uh, coming up to the busy period of the market, um, final quarter of the calendar year, always flat okay. out. I, uh, I haven't had a chance to, to get many um, nightcaps in, so that's a shame. <laughs> but if, if I had to have a theme drink, it would probably be something like the, the no liability cap. Um, like and what do you know what's in it have you thought well, about it, the ingredients it, i mean it needs to be strong that's for sure because uh, <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah. because after a full day of underwriting and, and dealing with usrs etc um one one needs a, a relaxant and uh i think i based this on a, a long island iced tea but maybe replace the tea with coffee i don't know how that'll taste but uh <laughs> I'm, willing, I'm willing to be the guinea pig <laughs> brian do you have you uh, taken the opportunity to come up with a rwi theme drink I don't know. Maybe I'll do a contingent risk. And what's in that? I don't know. Uh, maybe it would be milder than 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 Gus's drink. Uh, it would have to be, basically. Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll come up with the ingredients. That'll be in the show notes. How about that? A, a show notes. Perfect. We'll give recipes uh, we'll, to all we'll, our we'll, listeners. We'll get, right, right, right. What about you, Jenna? I actually thought about it and I couldn't come up with a good one. So I'm going to stick with my drink of choice, which is white wine. Not exciting, but we can give it a fun name. Maybe. I think you would be like, like no escrow, Jenna. I think that'd be no escrow. Yeah. I like it. No escrow. Perfect. There you go. A nice white wine. A nice <laughs> from New Zealand, but we'll just call it no escrow. Good. Perfect. Thank you, Brian. We'll, we'll tell, we'll tell Matt at the, at the Aeon conference, they, they have to come up with these theme drinks and have them, you know, be there for everybody. I bet Matt would like that idea. I think well, he would. I think he would. We'll, we'll make that suggestion to him. So, yeah. well, well, uh, thank you very much guys for being on the show today. Again, you're a, a leader. Thank in you. In uh, someone who's really coming up with so many innovative ways of looking at this. And it's really been a pleasure to uh, have the chance to talk with you about these uh, subjects. No, th thank you for inviting me. I think, um, I think, well, hopefully you haven't heard my um, my outlook pinging, but that is uh, <laughs> that's perhaps uh, sort of commonplace in in uh, Thursday afternoon in my world. But um, as I said, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you both, and uh, love the fact that, that there's a, a podcast on uh, <laughs> about time. And I think I can say on behalf of the market um, and our clients, thanks very much for putting this together because. Um, there are lots of people out there who who take a huge interest in what we do, and um, you're certainly leading the charge in having that conversation week in, week out. Well, thank you, Gus. We really appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much, and uh, those are very kind words. We appreciate it. Okay, great. Well, this has been another episode of Into the Breach, and appreciate all of our listeners tuning in, and until next time, thank you. Thank you for listening to Into the Breach. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, please visit rwipodcast.com. The views and opinions expressed by Brian O'Keefe and Jenna Usenheimer in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Cyfarth Shaw, LLP, its partners, or its employees. The podcast does not provide legal or other professional services. This podcast is made available by the lawyer publishers for educational purposes only, as well as to give you general information and a general understanding of the law, not to provide specific legal advice. By listening to this podcast, you understand that there is no attorney-client relationship between you and the lawyer publishers. 
The podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state. As defined in the State Bar of New York's Code of Professional Responsibility, this podcast is considered a form of attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee similar outcomes. Thank you.